Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Archangels of Justice Weekly. We had a great response from our first week and are very excited to bring you our second episode of this podcast. Please remember, though, that these first four episodes are going to appear on both the case files and the weekly podcast feeds. But starting with episode five, the weekly podcast will only be available on its own feed. Make sure you subscribe to both so you don't miss any episodes. I also want to remind everyone to like us on Facebook at Archangels of Justice and follow us on Twitter at ArchangelPod. We really enjoy doing these podcasts and want to continue doing them for as long as possible. So we're asking our subscribers to go on Patreon for as little as $1, you can help the Archangels continue their work. For those of you who donate $5 or more, though, you'll be the first to receive a preview of our newest Case Files podcast on Leonard Peltier. I just saw a rough cut of it today and I was very impressed, so please donate today so you don't miss out on that. A special thank you to Laura Taylor, who recently contributed to us on Patreon. In this week's podcast, Sal, Ira, and I speak with private investigator Dave Beers and Truth and Justice President Sheila Berry. Both have dedicated their lives to helping the wrongfully convicted get out of prison. This is a little bit longer of an episode, but it's very informative and eye-opening, so I hope you enjoy it. Lastly, this week's podcast is brought to you by two of our original sponsors from the Case Files podcast, TotalFrontPage.com and Blueberry.com. So big shout out to them for the support they continue to give us. Sometimes we forget why we're here. It's easy to fall off track. These help us remember. These battles Hi, Dave, and thank you for joining Sal, Ira, and I today to talk about wrongful convictions. You mentioned before we began recording that you had some personal experience with being wrongfully accused. If you would not mind, could you share that story with our audience? Yeah, well, that that started it all. I I never would have dreamed that I'd be doing criminal defense work, but uh, 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 I've been I've been an investigator with the New York State Police for. several years, and uh, I'd recently been transferred into the uh, forensic identification unit, and unbeknownst to me, uh, two of the members that were already there had had been engaged in uh, some evidence tampering. And of course, over time, my name started to appear on things, and when the investigation started, my two colleagues were uh, indicted, and uh, initially I was cleared of any wrongdoing, but then later uh, <laughs> they turned it around and, and came after me with false accusations and it charged me uh, also. But I was indicted, uh, arrested uh, in two different jurisdictions, uh, uh, multiple charges, evidence tampering, perjury, official misconduct, uh, I think a total of 18 charges. It took a two-year legal battle, but I had uh, uh, two great attorneys that basically volunteered to, to uh, represent me uh, because they'd worked with me before, and they and they believed in me. And uh, so, to make a long story short, I went to trial uh, not once but twice, and, and I was exonerated of all charges uh, in a regular, relatively short uh, deliberation time, and. Uh, Despite my exoneration, uh, you know, I was considered damaged goods by the state police, so they, they fired me. Uh, but I, I didn't want my training and experience to go to waste, so I uh, 
um, got my private investigator's license and started working in the private sector. And, uh, you know, my, my uh, position was, you know, that if what happened to me could, could if, if that could happen to a, a dedicated police officer, it could happen to anybody. Uh, so I, uh, I started working in the private sector and I, I got work right away. One of my first cases was was a murder case uh, that uh, I, I knew right away was the wrong guy, <laughs> and uh, I, th I think my work was instrumental in getting him uh, acquitted. Uh, so anyway, that was the that was the uh, that was the eye opening experience for me. And uh, since then, uh, I've had a lot of uh, high profile uh, murder cases and, and other cases where. Um, I believe uh, the, the defendant was falsely accused uh, and or convicted, uh, and, and despite my best efforts sometimes. Uh, we did have some successful uh, exonerations uh, after trial, uh, however, there were some that uh, resulted in convictions that they shouldn't have been, and uh, that's really, really disturbing, uh, and some of them are, uh, uh, are worse than others. Dave, on some of the cases, uh, this is something that Ira and I have found on the numerous times. How many times has this happened to you as an expert, where you know you're you're set up to testify, or you're going to be you know used as an expert in a trial, and then some judge decides you're no longer an expert, uh, as if to say, you know, your 20 years, 30 years plus experience, whether you as law enforcement as a private investigator included. You, you don't know what you're talking about, that they, they exclude you from uh, providing defense work, which a uh, defendant's entitled to. Yeah, that, it, uh, that's only happened a couple of times to me. Uh, most of the time, uh, uh, the attorneys use my information, use my investigative work, uh, and, and I act more as a consultant for them to uh, to help them uh, you know, move their case along. Uh, I've only been right. called on the a few times, uh, but right. I, had, I, I was denied by in, in one situation where uh, I had the experience and the training to qualify as an expert, and I was denied. Yeah, I was wondering if that happens to us frequently as well, and then we wind up doing consulting work at the table with the defense team, but it's surprising yeah. how the judges uh, nowadays, though we side with the prosecutors uh, before trial even starts. Uh, that's what amazes me. Is, is that the state and the police are allowed to uh, come up with this um, prosecutorial um, offensive team, but the defense is not given the same um, equal playing ground? Oh, that's for sure. I mean, it's it's supposed to be a level playing field, but it's uh, it's far from that. We'll talk a little bit more about your own personal experience. Why was the prosecution so gung ho about charging with a crime, even though there was little to no evidence? Yeah, I, I to this day I really don't know why why they were uh, so gung ho on that. I I, I never could understand that uh, because every attempt that I made uh, through my attorney, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to listen, and uh, and anything I said, they you know they tried to turn it around and and, and use it against me. You know, and I I'd always believed very firmly that you know the truth will protect you, but uh, I learned pretty quickly during that experience that that's not always the case. And, and I've seen examples of that with uh, with some of the clients I've represented as well. 
and, and it's very frustrating from a uh, from a defense perspective to, to see that type of thing happening, where the, the prosecutor won't even won't even listen to uh, to what you have to say. And, uh, I, I was just dumbfounded when when they arrested me, and because uh, I, I knew I hadn't done anything, but uh, it was just crazy. And uh, I, I've, like I said, I've seen that same type of scenario play out with other defendants where there just wasn't enough evidence to support uh, an indictment. But they, they do it anyway, and then, and then they uh, bend over backwards to try to convict them. I've had, uh, I've had a number of uh, defendants who uh, were wrongfully convicted. I, I strongly believe that. Um, I, had, I had the one... Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. It's it's in upstate New York. Uh, a wealthy uh, businessman accused of killing his wife. You know they were going through a divorce, and uh, they had very very little evidence against him. Uh, and but they focused on him right from the very beginning and and, and didn't look at anybody else at all with any uh, with any real interest. And he was. Uh, he was convicted, and then the first trial was thrown out because a new witness came forward with new information. And, and uh, what really disturbed me about that was that they, uh, instead of investigating what the new witness provided, uh, they just tried to salvage their case and, and destroy the witness. And uh, it, was a, it was brutal. And uh, he ended up getting convicted a second time. and. That case was uh, he, he won the appeal on that one. It was granted a third trial because of the high-profile nature. They finally granted him uh, change of venue. He got a new attorney, went to trial a third time in the new jurisdiction. Uh, the trial was uh, it was like eight weeks long, and it ended up in a hung jury. And the, the interesting thing about it, it was. The jury was split by gender, if you can believe that. <laughs> but anyway, it was a hung trial, hung jury, mistrial. He went to a fourth trial and decided to go with a bench trial to kind of remove the elements of uh, emotion and personalities and that type of thing. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, he was finally acquitted. Uh, Isn't that amazing? It was just an amazing story. It took 15 years for that to happen. Jeez. The case happened you know, in 2001, and he finally got acquitted in 2016. Uh, and he spent he spent about four years in prison uh, after the second conviction. So, it's, and and I I firmly believe that uh, he did not kill his wife, and, I, and I'm pretty sure, certain I know who did. And, and the police, I think, know it as well, but they won't go there. Why do they – is it something where, you know, they, it's one of these things like they just want to be right? Like why do they go after go after these people when they know they're not guilty? Like is it just for to keep their conviction rates up? Like is it a statistical thing? Like what, what, what drives them to, to do something like that? Personally, I think it's political. You know, they they once they get that first conviction, you know, and and if, they, if it gets thrown out or uh, there's evidence that somebody else did this, they'll 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 fight tooth and nail to prevent that from happening because uh, 
they're, they're afraid of the, the liability and, and, and being made to look bad. Uh, it, it's really it's really pretty scary what they'll what they'll do to salvage a case, even if they know it's the, the right thing to do. I had another case involving a young a man who uh, convicted of murdering his wife, and it wasn't even a murder. It was a it was a tragic accident. Sal's familiar with this one. Yeah, I was going to bring that one up. Go with it. And uh, <laughs> he uh, he got convicted three times in the same little pick town. Uh, never was granted a change of venue, and 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 the whole the whole case is is, is just riddled with. Uh, a lousy investigation and, and fabricated evidence and perjured testimony. It's it's really, uh, really bad that, that to think that a, a sworn officer would be willing to to do that uh, to, to put a man in prison. You know, in that case, Dave. I, you know, after working on that case with you, uh, why don't you tell um, us about? Uh, Peter, you know, give a little background on Peter and his last name, and uh, that way you and I can discuss a little bit about the case so um, Joe gets a handle on what it is that uh, we found wrong with it. Yeah, <laughs> well, there's there's so much wrong, but anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, this case involved Peter Walasik, uh, uh, W-L-A-S-I-U-K. I pronounce it Walasik. Uh, I, I believe that's correct. Uh, Peter was married to his wife, Patty. Uh, they had three children of their own. Patty had one uh, in a prior marriage. Uh, this was back in uh, early April of 2002 in the uh, little upstate town of uh, Guilford, New York, in Shenango County, rural rural community. Uh, Peter uh, uh, had taken his wife uh, and the children to the babysitter's uh, house uh, one afternoon and uh, dropped them off. The kids stayed with the babysitter. Peter went to work, and Patty, his wife, uh, drove the babysitter's car to work. She worked as a nurse at a local hospital. Uh, she was supposed to pick up the kids when she got out of work. She worked a 3 to 11 shift, and uh, she never showed up. So the babysitter calls Peter. Uh, she, no, she's not here yet. Let's give her a few more minutes. Uh, finally, uh, uh, Peter calls the babysitter back and says, Patty just got here. She doesn't have the kids. Uh, we'll be right down. And the babysitter could hear him yelling and arguing in the background. So Patty jumps into Peter's truck. Peter jumps in the passenger side right be, uh, right along with her, and uh, they start heading down to get the children, arguing all the way. They get down on the main road, which in, in, and it goes by this lake. It's called Guilford Lake. And Patty was smoking, so she rolled down the window, and uh, a hot ash went into the back of the truck. She pulls over to the side of the road to check on it, and uh, when she's leaning back to check on the cigarette ash, Peter could smell alcohol on her breath. And, and Patty had a history of uh, at least four DWIs, and so she was she was an alcoholic. 
So Peter, that made him even angrier that she was driving uh, when they were going to pick up the kids. So he screamed at her, told her to turn the truck around. We'll get the kids later. Patty's just losing it. So she pulls over uh, to make a K-turn, which Peter thought she was going to make a K-turn. But instead of backing up, she hit the gas and went right down over the bank and into uh, Guilford Lake. It's, it's kind of a long story, but, uh, you know, Peter tries to get her out. Uh, his, his door is locked. Uh, her window is down, so he crawls over her out the window and tries to drag her out the window. Uh, he loses her as she's coming out the window. It's 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 midnight, so it's dark. He can't see. The water is 40 degrees. He's freezing. He makes his way to shore, finds somebody to call 911. Uh, first responders start coming. Peter's placed in a police car later into an ambulance and goes to the hospital. Uh, a diver recovers Patty from the bottom of the lake near the truck. They try to resuscitate her. They fail. They take her to the hospital. She's pronounced dead. Uh, Peter gets arrested for murder uh, because he he told the police that Patty had swerved to miss a deer and and the the uh, because he didn't want to get her in trouble for DWI again. And that that little lie cost him. Uh, cost him a lot because they, they didn't believe him and uh, ended up arresting him for murder. At that, at that time, didn't they believe that Peter, uh, I bet it was an accident originally, that they were believing him in the beginning? and that, Oh, yeah, they uh, believed him in the beginning. He, yeah, I mean, he thought she was, did he not, if I'm not mistaken, when he first made that statement? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was, it was clearly uh, an accident. He just... He didn't want her to get in trouble for uh, DWI, so he made up the part about the deer. Right. Uh, but yeah, but he had he had told them that it was an accident, and he he described just how he uh, pulled her out of the truck and and uh, where he lost her, and that's that's right where the diver found her. But they uh, they ended up theorizing that Peter had killed Patty up at the house and placed her body in the bed of the pickup truck. And then got to the top of the lake and got out, put the truck in gear, and, and let it roll into the lake. And there was there was no evidence to support that whatsoever, but that's that was their theory. Um, and they and they, and they did they did a bunch of things really really lousy, and uh, uh, the the whole case kind of focused on a uh, these these burdocks. I, I guess I got to back up a little bit. When 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 Patty's body was autopsied, the medical examiner, uh, his his findings were that she it was probable drowning, uh, pending toxicology. Well, the toxicology came back negative, uh, <laughs> but then uh, a few days later, based on the police investigation, uh, you know she had some burdocks in her hair. Uh, for those of you don't, who don't know what burdocks are, they're just the, these little balls that grow on bushes that are really sticky. They'll stick to anything like hair or fur or clothing. 
and uh, the police claimed that there weren't any burdocks at the lake scene. So it was their position that uh, this must have happened up at Peter's house before the accident. So they bring the medical examiner right up to the lake shore and show him that there's no burdocks on the lake shore. But there wouldn't have been because the bush that was there got obliterated by the truck. So the burdocks were, were long gone. Uh, but anyway, based on that information, uh, the, the pathologist changed his cause of death or manner of death to uh, uh, asphyxiation, claiming that Peter had uh, suffocated her uh, up at the house, and uh, that that was the that was a starting point of the whole uh, oh, the whole nonsense. He, he changed his uh, his findings from drowning to suffocation, asphyxiation. <laughs> yeah. it, it was you know really pathetic, and. Uh, they had actually consulted with a, uh, a a defense pathologist who had a great deal more experience than than the one who did the autopsy, and he uh, he said it, it was a drowning, and, and there was there was all kinds of evidence to, to pointing to a drowning. Unfortunately for Peter, his first attorney never bothered to call that pathologist for the first trial. So that that was the big mistake. That's why he's where he's at right now. Uh, which is state prison. So Peter's but, still uh, in prison today. Yeah, he's he's still in prison. It's fifteen years. He, he and he, he after the first trial that was thrown out. He went to a second trial uh, and was convicted again, again in the same the same little county. That that conviction was thrown out. Then he went back for a third trial in two thousand and twelve, and he got convicted again. Um, and we, and we tried, we tried to bring up these issues every time I, I wasn't involved in the first trial. I wish I had been, I, I might've been able to help. Uh, I got on board just before the second trial, but by then a lot of the damage was done. And, uh, this, this case was just riddled with, uh, police misconduct and tampering with evidence and, uh, doing whatever it took to, to, uh, get Peter convicted. And, and Sal's familiar with some of these things. Yeah, what's amazing about this case after I got involved with this is about two and a half years ago when I first started talking to Dave and um, Mr. Wasiliak's um, uh, team of people that are on the outside that try to help him. Looking at the physical evidence of the scene and the dive team uh, recovery of her body, you know, a couple of things come to interest is that the bottom of that lake is covered in burdocks because of the fact that there's burdocks on different parts of that shoreline so, so they're on the bottom the other thing that was interesting was her jacket was turned inside out which is indicative of him peter trying to pull her through the window and with her being wet and maybe losing um you know his grip on her because she's coming through the window of the truck and the weight of the truck pulling and the suction he turned a jacket inside out, and that's how he lost her. So she falls to the bottom outside the truck, which is indicative of her coming out of the window. So them saying that her being in the back of the pickup truck doesn't make any sense at all because the back of the pickup truck contained a toolbox 
which had floated out of the truck, you know, as well. And that was heavier than Patty. Now, Patty's laying down next to the truck. Her, her jacket's laying down next to her on the bottom. She's got some burlocks in her hair and burlocks in this jacket, which they're on the bottom. So they're going to get on her. Then they talk about the sophistication. Well, in a strangulation, she'd have what's called uh, fatigia, which is a uh, almost like a bloodshot eye. Best way to explain it. Well, she doesn't have those. Her eyes are clear. In fact, her eyes are so clear that they were donated to the eye bank after she was pronounced dead. She was an organ donor. So. You know, you've got one thing after the other that's not correct from the autopsy. She's got some bruises on her face and on her chest, which are consistent with resuscitation efforts by the medics, which they tried to resuscitate her several times. Now, there was a, a medical doctor that reviewed her autopsy reports and also the video of the photographs of her body and stated basically the same thing that all those marks on her face were consistent with um, rescue efforts, not a beating. So they tried to say that, you know, Peter beat her up and then choked her to death and then threw her body in the back of the truck and then pushed it in the water. Now, what amazes me about it as well is the New York State Police offered their assistance in the traffic reconstruction of the accident, but they were refused by the local Bodunk Police Department. So who doesn't have a specialist? In traffic reconstruction. You know, and then the second doctor that reviewed the autopsy reports, who had far more experience than the first one, his testimony wasn't allowed to stand. The other issues with the case is the prosecutor in that town is a direct cousin to Patty. Okay, and the, of course they had one of the assistants you know, prosecute the case, but that doesn't make any difference. This whole case from the beginning should have never been tried in that venue. It should have been moved out because of the personal relationship between the prosecutor and the victim. You know, and then this prosecutor, after Peter is convicted, winds up handling his cousin's estate. So all the property and everything else is, is, is passed through this man's office when he's actually a, a state employee, he shouldn't even have been able to allow to be handling that. So it's, it's just one thing after the other in this case. There was a pair of shoes on the bank that were dry that they claimed belonged to Peter. What in fact, when Peter bailed out of the truck, he couldn't get Patty. He couldn't reach her, get down to the water to get her, or you know, get under the water deep enough to get her. He ran for help, and a young man came down to help him who put on a wetsuit and a pair of swim fins, who took his shoes off, obviously, to do that, to try to assist the rescue Patty before the dive team got there. So to make a long story short, you know, get this pair of shoes sitting on the shoe on the shore that could have easily been sent away for DNA to establish whose shoes they were. Peter's shoes were still inside the truck, wet. Because he went up barefoot you know, in this, when he was trying to get out of the truck, I guess he, he lost his boots, they weren't laced, or whatever the case was. They were still in the truck, not on the shore. And it's just one thing after the other with this case. And it amazes me when I see one prosecutor and a police officer and then a judge, these three same three people, over and over and over again, using the same bogus 
evidence to support a conviction. And and we see this, Ira and I see this constantly with cases. And it doesn't have to be a homicide case. It could be virtually any kind of case. If the prosecutors and the cops want you, they will go do their best efforts to bury you. And then if they've got a buddy in the in the office of the judge, you know, the defense team has, has no prayer. The, the other the other problem with Peter was that he had a he had a prior run in with uh, with a lead investigator. Um, so, you know, the, the cards were stacked against him right from the get go. And then they, they, these two, these two clashed, uh, in, in the early stages of the investigation. And, uh, uh, I just think the lead investigator, you know, used, you know, misused his authority to, uh, you know, to bring the murder charges against Peter and he did whatever it took. So this question is for any of you, how can we fix this situation? What are some of the policies we can put in place to help mitigate the risk of someone being wrongfully accused in the future? Well, my personal opinion is, is pretty much the same anytime anyone is asking that question before. Is, you know, police officers have to be held to a higher standard, for, for one thing. Personal vendettas have no place in law enforcement. You know, this whole gut feeling thing, you know, I get it. I understand it. You know, you get a gut feeling about somebody or whatever. And that's just basically survival. And on the street, that works sometimes. But when it comes to an investigation where you have to put all your efforts into arresting and prosecuting someone, you should be putting your best foot forward. And that means, you know, if you need some help with expertise from a traffic crash unit, a blood spatter expert, a ballistics expert, then you should be seeking out the best there is, especially when you're looking at putting someone behind bars forever. Uh, but these guys, their egos get in the way. And then if you've got the situation with prosecutors and the police where they have such a, sh- a working relationship and a friendship almost, that the prosecutors a lot of times believe the policemen without any supportive evidence. I When I first started in law enforcement, um, I was amazed at the amount of times a prosecutor would question me and other officers about what our testimony was, what our evidence was, as if they were being like acting like defense attorneys. Well, these prosecutors actually taught me a valuable lesson. They were good prosecutors, and they didn't want to walk into a courtroom with some bogus story that some cop was pushing. So they taught me you know, how to pursue an investigation properly. But now since that time has passed, and all of these years later, I'm seeing now where prosecutors will walk down the aisle with any story some cop brings to them and pursue a, um, a prosecution and a conviction. You know, yeah, we need I, to I, have a, a third party overseer in, in, in these cases where when there is any doubt in the validity of, of a police officer's case, the prosecutor's officer, someone, needs to step up and say, wait a minute, you don't have the evidence here to support an arrest, let alone a conviction, and put a stop to it. But that's not happening anymore. It seems like uh, lately the amount of cases that I've seen and Ira's seen and Dave's seen, we're, we're going over the top here on pushing for prosecutions wrongfully of people that didn't commit crime and no evidence to support their crimes. I'm seeing a lot of that myself quite often, uh, you know, and that, 
that case I talked about in the beginning where the man went to trial four times, uh, the lead investigator in that case clearly had a conflict of interest, but but she never shared it with anybody, and and, and so she stayed on, and that, and I think that conflict of interest caused her to. You know, she had a personal interest in, in the in the results, and uh, that was demonstrated throughout the course of her investigation. Uh, and, and, and for example, she she this this was a missing persons case. There was no there was never a body found. It was a bodiless crime. So the the husband's wife was never found. There was never any murder weapons found. And uh, this lead investigator was in. Uh, this businessman's uh, attorney's office two days after the wife went missing and, and looking him right in the eye and saying, I know he did this and I'm going to prove it. So she already had her mind made up and uh, she clearly, she clearly, uh, all of her decisions were bias related throughout the case. And uh, it, it's very unfortunate that, that, that somebody has that much power uh, and control and I think she it was it was a small county, and I think she used that same control to uh, to convince the district attorney to move forward on the case. When when I, I don't think he would have on his own. I think he was pushed uh, to make that happen. And uh, here we are, 15 years later, and he and he finally gets exonerated. But uh, you know, a lot of damage done. What do you feel we need to put in place, though, as, you know, maybe at a state, local, you know, even a federal level to prevent these kind of things? Like, what what, what do you think would be a good starting point if we wanted to at least, you know, hold these things in, in check so so we're not, you know, we're not running into to people pushing their own agendas or, or pushing a story that isn't true just because, you know, they want to keep their statistics, or they want to be proven right? I, I kind of agree with Sal. Maybe some third party, uh, some neutral third party involvement to, to take an independent look at the case uh, to decide whether it's it's worthy of, of pursuing uh, or or whether or not there's some type of conflict based on some personal bias uh, uh, amongst the police officers. Uh, I just think right now there's there's too much co control and too much power by the police. Uh, and, and making those decisions and without any accountability. Look, the police lie and fabricate stuff in certain cases, so do the prosecutors, and they have virtually no punishment. You start punishing some of these police that are lying and convicting people, or prosecutors that are withholding documents or falsifying documents or make false statements in court, and it'll it'll come to a very big slowdown. As long as they have immunity from any kind of stuff like that, you know, people think they have blanket immunity, but they have blanket immunity from civil lawsuits. They don't have blanket immunity from criminal prosecutions. So wouldn't it be nice if we had a, a, a national or, or state or federal organization that would that would go in, investigate this, and criminally charge the prosecutors when they do things wrong or the police when they do things wrong? Um, you know, when you try to put somebody in prison, uh, it's attempted false imprisonment. If you uh, falsely incarcerate them for a period of time, it's false imprisonment. If you try to put a person in, in some states that have the death penalty, penalty uh, and, and, and you try to do that, or even if they execute the person, that's murder on behalf of the prosecutor. And if even if he made a mistake, too bad. 
prosecute a couple of these, and that'll come to a screeching halt. Yeah, yeah and there's, you know, I was right. There's no reason, actually, in this day and age, for us to be making the mistakes that law enforcement and prosecutors and judges make. They're not mistakes. They're done on purpose. You know, these people are educated. They know the rules. Uh, there are standards put in place by every state for investigation, uh, pro- proper procedures, evidence collection. All this stuff has been, you know, proven and, and is in place, but they don't follow it. And I, my belief is to put in place something at the federal level where, uh, say, the FBI or the Department of Justice or some other alphabet soup organization that the president puts together comes up with a set of standards, of police standards, and every police agency has to follow them, A to Z, from every investigation. I don't care if it's a, a small investigation all the way to a capital felony. They have to follow those procedures. They have to they have to go by that checklist and show that they collected certain evidence, they got certain testimony, and all of this stuff is taped, photographed, collected properly. Prosecutors under the same set of rules before they follow through on a prosecution. And judges no longer allowed to say to a person that's an expert. Like you take, for example, you get a guy that were a woman that was a police officer for 30 years, 20 to 30 years, testified in case after case for the state, and they were an expert. Now, all of a sudden, they're in the civilian capacity like the three of us are. And now, all of a sudden, we no longer know what the hell we're talking about. That needs right. to stop. These judges don't need to have that kind of power, and but they do. And when they wield it the way they do, they're not allowing a defendant to have a fair trial. And this is because these judges and prosecutors and cops all work in the same community and they're all friends. And that has to stop. We no longer see a sterilized criminal justice system where, you know, justice is supposed to be blind. In other words, it's not supposed to be biased or prejudicial. Well, that's baloney. It's, it's, it's blind, all right. It's blind to honesty. It's blind to, be, to being factual. It's, it is what the prosecutor wants to happen, and the judges allow it. Ira and I see it all the time, and I'm, I know Dave has seen it a bunch of times, and it's actually disgusting. And, you know, we could put together in every community a grand jury in every county. There's a grand jury in place in most states for about a six-month period of time, and then, then a new grand jury goes into place. These are citizens. Those same people could be, pre- be presented the evidence in a case like Peter's, and those people can decide whether or not someone needs to be indicted or not. And if the prosecutors don't bring forward all the evidence and, and, and another attorney uh, can bring forward whatever defense arguments it may be, that grand jury could decide right then and there, not guilt or innocence, but whether or not the person needs to go to trial. Because if they decide a crime wasn't committed, it would put an end to a lot of this, these, these bogus convictions. And that same grand jury can investigate police misconduct and uh, prosecutorial misconduct when brought forth by a complainant like Ira, myself, or Dave, or another group of people that are investigating something independently and bring that information in front of that grand jury. And that grand jury could decide whether or not that police officer or that prosecutor or even that judge may need to face criminal charges for their conduct. And that yeah. would put a stop to this nonsense. Yeah, they're impartial. Know. See, those people are impartial. They're not paid officials. They're, they're people of the community, and they have every right to decide 
whether or not their judges and their prosecutors and their police officers are acting appropriately. You know, in Wisconsin, we have what's known as a John Doe. We we got a John uh, grand jury system, but it's seldom, if ever, used. And John Doe is for a judicial investigation seeking to go into corruption or, or where people won't talk or, or political operations. Um, I am the prevailing case law on John Doe's in Wisconsin because I filed so many of them. I have one pending on a case right now. Um, I don't want to mention the name of the city, but it's uh, spelled Sheboygan, Wisconsin. <laughs> and and uh, I have it against a judge and a district attorney um, the case, and, a, and a detective. The case was assigned <clears throat> to the judge I have it against, and the district attorney is assigned as the prosecutor. Where the hell am I going with it? Yeah, See, yeah, that case needs to have a veggie change. That that case shouldn't be allowed to be tried in that city because of the conduct of that police officer. This is the case where this clown arrests a man with what he calls, and, that, and I, I know Dave will chime in this one here, with temporary warrant. Well, I don't care how long you've been a cop or not. There is no such thing as a temporary warrant. If the judge allowed this, and so did the prosecutor. The man, the detective, had no probable cause to make an arrest. He's fabricated evidence throughout this trial or, or, or through the investigation. And we're up and coming on to a trial next week or this coming week. And guess what? This judge has not allowed any expert to be able to testify on behalf of the defendant when all the experts have more qualifications than the police officer that arrested this guy does. And he allowed that that police officer, that detective, he granted him expert status so he could testify against the defendant. And the engineers and the and the other people that are true experts, he won't allow them. Yeah, so you have to say to yourself, where is justice in this country today? When you see so many people locked up behind bars and getting convicted of crimes that they didn't commit, and they're not even allowed to have a fair trial. What happened to innocence? You know, you're innocent before proven. You're innocent and have to be proven guilty. You're not, you're not guilty, then have to prove your innocence. Yeah, yeah. The grand jury system, uh, the way it is, it's it's just it's basically just a rubber stamp of what the district attorney wants. Uh, he, he yeah, has it's a lot that way. Total control over what goes into the grand jury. So. You know the phrase. You know you can indict a ham sandwich is is pretty pretty true. You know that that's the prosecutors. Yeah, yeah. But but if there You're was right. a different type of grand jury, like Sal said, yeah. uh, might make a difference. Well, you'd have to have a citizen, a grand jury made up of citizens, and then you'd have to be able to present the evidence, excluding the prosecutor. You know where you, especially if the prosecutor has is suspect of wrongdoing, a, a citizen complaint team, you know, put together of, of former experts and whatnot that are, are not paid by the government can go in and present this case. You know, a, a lot of people argue this all the time. And, and my point is if you can't, this is impossible to get a fair trial when the same state pays the judge, prosecutor, and the public defender. You know, it's yeah. impossible. And then when you get a private attorney, if you don't have the money to hire a good private attorney and private investigators and experts, 
your chances of getting a good trial are pretty slim. And even if you can, now you're up against some judge who wants his prosecutor to win. It's going to not allow experts in the trial that may help the defense. So at some point here, a grand jury made up of citizens where a, a citizen complaint can be brought forth to them in secret where evidence is, is presented to that grand jury. That grand jury could overturn some of these things that prosecutors do or indict these prosecutors for criminal wrongdoing. You know, and then, of course, they have to be prosecuted by, you know, a, a federal, uh, like the Department of Justice, or maybe a, a state prosecutorial special prosecutor from another area. Because the problem you run into is this like a fraternity. Uh, these judges and these lawyers, most of them went to similar law schools. They all have the same thought patterns and processes, and they protect each other. It, it's a, really a damn shame. How many prosecutors are found uh, in, in, in wrongdoings that result in convictions and, in some cases, the death of a defendant, and this person was wrongfully convicted? And these prosecutors get in no trouble. Yeah. It, it's damn sad. And until, like Ira said, you start locking some of them up, you're not going to see any changes. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add real quick that <laughs> I got a, kind of a related a case uh, involving that same lead investigator that uh, that was involved in that uh, murder case involving four trials. Prior to that, she had uh, uh, she had uh, taken taken a false confession from a 15 year old juvenile uh, and charged him with attempted murder of his stepfather. And he he spent several months in a juvenile detention facility. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, there was another investigation going on by another unit of the state police uh, called the CNET unit, which is the Community Narcotics Enforcement Team. Uh, and they arrested a man uh, on drug charges who had information, he said, that they might be interested in involving a, a, a shooting. Well, when they investigated it further, they found out that uh, it was this same case. And that, uh, uh, to make a long story short, they they uh, they found out who actually did the shooting, and they recovered the gun. And ultimately, the the 15 year old was uh, released from juvenile detention facility and uh, sued the, uh, the state police and the county, and uh, was awarded a substantial sum of, of money. Um, but but I, I cringe thinking about what his life would have been like. Uh, if those officers from the other agency had had decided not to believe uh, the, the the suspect in the drug case, uh, and and that was the same investigator that she, she took a coerced confession from this 15-year-old after 15 hours of interrogation, and his mother was denied access to to participate in the interview. And then after this is all over, what do they do? They promote her to senior investigator and, and assign her her own station. Uh, that sucks. Yeah. It happens quite frequently. I've always, I used to use that phrase that uh, they, they promote them to the level of their incompetence. You know, it, it's like as if, you know, if, if you do the bidding of the political power in the community, you, they move you up in rank. 
that's why I've always chuckled at uh, these attorneys that question experts about whether or not they were ever in a supervisory capacity, like a sergeant, lieutenant, or a captain. And I always laugh because I think to myself, what, is, what does that mean? Does that mean that that person that was promoted is smarter than the person that wasn't? Generally, it means the person that was promoted was an ass kisser, a liar, and a phony. And that's why they were promoted because they'll do the chief or the sheriff's bidding. And that's why they're promoted. Where the yeah. other person that's willing to do and only will do an honest day's work doesn't budge, you know, from that position. And, yeah, and yeah. that's the way law enforcement functions today. And people don't understand that, but it's the God's honest truth. I've seen it. I've lived it. And I, it shocks me to, to see it. And it continues. So uh, we're going to have to uh, cut it here. Thank you so much, uh, D- Dave, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, is sure. there anything else you would like to add before we go? No, I just uh, encourage uh, people to uh, uh, maybe get involved in uh, in, in in pursuing this. It, it, most people aren't, aren't affected by this, but those who are r- really know what uh, what's going on here. And uh, uh, I've been doing criminal defense work now for twenty some years, and uh, if I can help somebody, uh, I'd be glad to do it. Um, and uh, I'll at least talk to them and. Uh, Maybe point him in the right direction. If you'd like to contact Dave Beers, he can be reached at P-I-B-E-R-S at Verizon.net. Before we begin the second part of this podcast and our conversation with Sheila Berry, I'd like to take a quick break for a message from our sponsors, TotalFrontPage.com and Blueberry.com. Did you know that approximately 95% of purchase decisions are made on the first pages of search engines? TotalFrontPage.com knows this and they can do what no other digital marketing company does. Put your company name in the autocomplete box of Google and Bing so that searchers see your business before they see any other company. Your business will appear in most, if not all, organic listings. No competitors, just you. If you'd like to know more about this groundbreaking service, you can check out their website, totalfrontpage.com, or for a free consultation, mention AOJ Podcast in the subject line when you email info at totalfrontpage.com. Act today because once these search terms are purchased, they cannot be used by any other company. Do you want to launch your own podcast or host your own media? Then you should be looking at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. With no third-party sites to log into, you remain in control by never leaving your website and having an iTunes and SoundCloud-friendly RSS feed. Get your 30-day free trial by just typing AOJ Podcast when you check out, and you could be broadcasting your very own media today. Sheila, thank you so much for being with us today. Sheila Berry is from Truth and Justice. Archangels of Justice lead investigator Ira Robbins has consulted with Sheila and Truth and Justice on multiple cases. Sheila has dedicated her life to helping the wrongfully convicted get out of prison. We are honored to have her here with us today. Sheila, you were just talking off air about Truth and Justice. Could you just expand on that and tell our audience a little bit more about what you do and the problems you've seen with wrongful convictions? Well, it it started uh, back in 1994 with a Wisconsin case, Penny Broomer, uh, who was convicted in the murder of Sarah Gonstead with a theoretical gun for uh, made-up reasons and everything. She was the only suspect. And it was supposed to be that she killed Sarah because she was jealous of the time that Sarah spent with her best friend who had been Penny's lover. Okay. 
Um, and there was a lot of time, money, and effort put into the investigation, which was focused entirely on building a case against Penny. Um, it was outrageous. One of my daughters sent me a newspaper article about it and said, you know, you have to write about this. Well, eventually we did. But as we dug into it, we realized that these were all over the place. And I had kind of already known that because I'd spent 11 years in criminal prosecution and um, had put a few people, helped to put a few people away who I later realized were probably not guilty. That's not a good thing to go to sleep with every night. And we decided, well, what can we do about this? We can't write a book about every one of these. And one of the things we knew how to do was HTML. We were on the internet when we didn't have anybody to write to. And uh, that's how Truth and Justice started in 1995. And uh, we, we did, we coded it in raw HTML, and uh, what we did was reposted mainline media news articles about exonerations. There weren't a lot of them then, but every one of them that we could find out about, we put on that website, and they're still there. Um, and then we branched out into compelling innocence claims. and. Then we started looking at how these happen. What are the factors? Faulty eyewitness identification, junk science, which is so prevalent in arson cases that that got its own section. Um, false allegations of child abuse, everything from um, shaken baby syndrome, which at best might be a diagnosis but shouldn't have been made into a crime. And then the ritual sex abuse cases, you know, the satanic stuff. Um, and uh, the false sex abuse in divorce, which is another syndrome. You know, if you can't get custody of the kids any other way, say that the other parent abused them. Um, we realized that of of any defendants, the easiest ones to get a conviction against, ironically, were police. Uh, and so that became its own section. Because on the one hand, well, there's this idea that police are always believed before any other witness. That doesn't apply if they're accused of a crime. Generally, not a crime while they're on the job at home, um, murders, uh, sex abuse of kids, anything like that. And everybody looks at each other and says, yeah, I knew, I knew it, I knew it. These guys, the only reason they become cops is because they're into control. And that's not necessarily true. Um, one of the things that we do is provide contact information for Innocence Projects. When we started, the only thing that there was was Centurion Ministries. And over the years, they have freed 61 innocent people 
but obviously that's a drop in the bucket nationally. And uh, then came Barry Sheck's uh, Innocence Project in New York at Cardozo Law School. And holy cow, there are Innocence Projects serving every state in the union now, a minimum of one for every state. And that has, that's one of the reasons there are so many exonerations now. And yet, that's maybe 10% of everybody who's innocent who's locked up because the system works to keep them there. So that's what we do, and that's our history. So talk a little bit about the statistics. During my research, I found that the U.S. has the most incarcerations in the world at 2 million. So for every 1%, so every 1% would equate to 20,000 people. So the Innocence Project estimates that between 2.3 and 5% of people in prison are wrongfully convicted. So that means as many as 100,000 people could be in prison for crimes they did not commit. Also, according to a recent study, 1 in 25 people in death row are innocent. I think it's more like 3 out of 25 on death row. And um, probably 3 to 5% as a conservative um, number of people who are convicted of crimes they did not commit. The federal government statistics say that um, 10% of people in prison are actually or factually innocent. Yeah, that's that's consistent. Other pe- others, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that it might be a little bit lower than that, but not much. Yeah, so what you're saying, two million in prison. That's two hundred thousand. Yeah, at ten percent, that's two hundred thousand. That, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. That's the size of a city, and uh, that's just wrong. And so many of them rot there or die there in prison wrongfully. Wow. I, I know. I can tell you, Ira and I have uh, gone down this road individually helping specific uh, inmates. In fact, for me, it was an inmate. Remember, I said I knew I had helped to put away some innocent people, and it, he was one of them. And we, they have fought tooth and nail for the last 25 years to keep him from getting access to evidence of his innocence. And once he finally got it, then he goes, tries to go back to court and the, tr- the trial court, which, you know, by that time was, he was moved into another County because everybody had to recuse themselves. But the judge in the trial court wouldn't even listen to the evidence, appealed that, Court of Appeals upheld it, um, went to the state Supreme Court. They would not look at it, filed a federal habeas, and that was just kicked out because they said he waited too long. He should have he should have uh, been able to file that habeas 20 years earlier when he couldn't get the uh, evidence that he had been set up. It's round and round you go. They're going to keep you in there. It's a miracle when people get out. Even though there are a lot of miracles now, that's because there are a lot of innocence projects. But it's still a drop in the bucket. We spoke with Dave about this earlier. But what is something we could put in place to speed up the process when people are wrongfully convicted or prevent it from happening in the first place? 
preventing it from happening in the first place would be very helpful, but that starts at the level of every one of us. You get called for jury duty, don't spend all your time trying to get out of it, first of all, and don't think that this is just like TV. Demand meaningful proof and don't be suckered in because too often juries are rubber stamps where an accusation is as good as a conviction. You know, be, be skeptical. Really think it through. Start pressuring lawmakers at the state level and federal level to make changes that will allow claims of innocence to be heard even years and years later, because sometimes it is so difficult to get the proof of innocence years and years later. In Virginia, 21 days after you've been convicted, it's too late. You only have three weeks to come up with new evidence of innocence, or it is forever barred. That's huh. got to go. <laughs> it's got to go. Well, that's like medieval. The Efficient uh, Execution Act, uh, they called it the uh, Effective uh, Death Penalty Enforcement or something, you know, it came in the wake of Tim McVeigh um, that puts such harsh time limits on habeas. That's what turned around and bit our inmate friend in the backside. He's looking at the rest of his life in prison for something he didn't do. The guy that did the murder walked away, and he's now an evangelical minister. He says, bless you to everybody, and it's all okay. And one of the prosecutors in that case, Joseph Paulus, went to prison. I created a John Doe and demanded that uh, criminal charges be issued against him. Um, the John Doe was handled by the Attorney General's office. The Attorney General's office came into uh, our first John Doe that was called by a, a prosecutor and granted Paulus immunity if he told the truth and then didn't ask him any questions. I put 21 different people and cases in there he falsified. And they just, uh, it was a conflict of interest. They, they're working in their own behalf to get rid of this case. And Paulus did get seven years in the federal prison. Well, they yep. protected each other. That's what they do. That's right. They protected each other on, on that. And, and they do it all the time. And, and you know, yeah, we've, and we've got, as individuals, as citizens, we need to put pressure on legislators to change things like this that allow that to happen uh, because they you know they all can turn around and say hey this is the nation of laws and we we're we're obeying this these laws well they need to have those pulled out from under them another thing that needs to change is the absolute immunity given to prosecutors <laughs> and that is primarily at a state level uh, for example, um, in Texas, there was some, there was less, less coverage and uh, ended up with, oh, granted, it was like 10 days in jail, but it's a start. 
and um, uh, other other states, it's just absolute. It isn't just that you can't sue them; it's that they can't even be charged. And there's a difference between allowing them discretion to vigorously prosecute cases and allowing them a free for all to uh, build build their uh, reputation as Mr. Tough Guy and keep getting reelected because that's where so much of it is. And people are so taken in. I remember with Joe Paulus that uh, my brother said people he'd talked to say, well, you know, they should let him go because he's tough on crime. They don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. Pe- <laughs> you know, people, thinking people need to stop just thinking of themselves and sit down and write, send an email. Gee, it's so easy now. Send an email to your legislator and tell them these are important to me. Because if they aren't important to you, when it happens to you, nobody will believe you. You That's won't have credibility part. anymore. You know, Sheila, I think I think you hit the nail right on the head is, is people, the general public, and I remember saying this when I was a police officer, was that, of the general public lives in their own little private bubble, and they have no contact with the legal system, in most cases, unless they're either a victim or they're called to jury duty. That's it. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't really understand the complexities of what goes on in the legal system, and they don't understand how many times prosecutors and policemen will fabricate evidence to prosecute someone. Until it happens to someone close to them or themselves, then all of a sudden their eyes are wide open. But until then, they just read the paper and go, oh, the police and the prosecutor did a wonderful job. They convicted this guy. And they really don't know the truth behind it. I mean, I've dealt with cases where someone needed to be arrested and prosecuted, and they don't want to do it for political reasons. And then there's cases where, you know, some poor schmuck is in the wrong place at the wrong time, didn't commit the crime, but he's facing charges for it. And you sit there and you go, what the hell is wrong with this system? What happened to mm-hmm. um, innocence, you know, before, you know, and then having to be proven guilty? What happened to that? It's gone. It's like you're guilty now. And now you've got to prove your innocence, and then you won't even allow you the tools to do it. I think we were talking before about, you know, your police officer, 20, 30 years, whatever. And, you know, you testify in court countless times, you know, the judge, the prosecutor, you, you, you tell your story, you got all your ducks in a row, you do a great job, then you retire or, or whatever, and you go into the private sector, and, and now you're going to be an expert, and you're going to do the same work you did when you worked bad. Now you're not wearing a badge, and maybe you find evidence in the case where because the prosecutors and the, and the judge, I mean, and the policemen have done something really wrong, egregiously wrong. And you go to this Dauber hearing, and the judge decides, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I sit there and I go, what happened? So when you retire and you take the badge off, that part of your brain goes with the badge. And I, I see this happen countless times where experts that are truly experts are not allowed to testify on behalf of the defense, 
when they're going to testify factually now, not not in a prejudicial manner, but factually, and the judge won't allow it. it it's it's sad. It's it's sad yeah. because this poor person has no chance of getting a fair trial. That's right. That, well, that's the kind of thing that you see in uh, arson cases, mm-hmm. uh, cases where it's it's an electrical fire that Mm -hmm. is charged as an arson. Gerald Hurst was a fantastic expert, PhD, Dr. Hurst. He passed away a couple of years ago. He worked on those cases for free. Mm -hmm. And he said, if there is a fatal fire and an adult survives, the adult will be charged with arson and murder. And nine Mm -hmm. times out of 10, he was correct. Mm -hmm. And then you get somebody who knows their beans and what do they get? Oh, well, the state opposes this uh, expert because he doesn't have an investigator's license and he can't, uh, if he doesn't have a private investigator's license, he can't investigate a fire. Mm-hmm. He can't offer an opinion as to cause. Um, and so the jury never gets to hear this guy who says it was an electrical fire. Mm-hmm. It was. And they convict a person. That's pretty scary. You those arson cases, you don't have to live on the wild side. Just mm-hmm. get up, go to work, come home. Um, and if there's a fire and somebody dies and you don't, nine times out of ten, you're going to be charged. Yeah, it's pretty that's amazing. Pretty, that's pretty scary. You don't have, mm-hmm. you know, everybody says, oh, well, they must have been doing something. Uh-uh. Yeah. Is this an attitude within law enforcement or the prosecution? Or do they just want to be right and put the crime on somebody? Why does law enforcement and prosecutors continue to do this? Some of it's arrogance. Um, some of it's tunnel vision. They look at everything through the same prism. And... Sal, I think you can uh, you can confirm this. You do the work long enough, you start to look at people differently. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people who left um, prosecution, they left uh, policing because they didn't like the way they were starting to look at people. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's um, very true because you 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 form an attitude, you know, a prejudicial attitude towards a certain uh, sector of the society or or a certain behavior pattern, rather than looking at the evidence. And I mentioned it before. I kind of I call that you know the gut instinct thing, which is great in a survival situation. But when you're investigating something and you have the time and you have the resources to investigate, you need to investigate, not rely on that gut anymore. It's okay to have a gut suspicion. But you need to prove it out by by looking at all the evidence. And if you find exculpatory evidence, you've got to look at that. You can't ignore it. But that's what but they was, do. Uh, there was there was a case in Ohio, um, probably fifteen years ago, and uh, Eve Rudd was the defendant's name. Uh, the strike she had against her was she was poor, she was black, um, she lived in not such a nice house. And um, there was a fire. Her husband hadn't gotten home yet from a meeting at church. 
Um, and two of her three children died. It was really tragic. Hmm. And they charged her, they charged Eve with um, arson and two counts of first-degree murder, asked for the death penalty. Her husband was in an absolute panic. And he emailed me at Truth and Justice. Well, who could who could ignore that? He said she would never do that. They said that she started it with uh, cooking oil, that she poured cooking oil on the kids' clothes and set that on fire. The Crisco theory. And it was based on um, the arson investigator walking through the doorway and saying that he knew that when he walked through the doorway that that was an arson. You know, Mr. Gut Instinct. Mm -hmm. You go try to you go try to set a pile of clothes on fire with uh, Crisco. With Crisco oil, <laughs> no. it doesn't oh, work. That doesn't work. It doesn't burn that way. Well, and I here's this poor case. woman. She's 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 just lost two of her children, and she yeah. is in jail, and she is facing the death penalty. And I got a hold of Dr. Hurst, and at that time already he was not well, but he pulled himself together and he took that case and testified, uh, showed showed burn tests that he and his assistant had done. She was acquitted in less than an hour. One of the things he also pointed out, which uh, I had passed along from my communications with her husband, he said, you know, there was something wrong with the stove. He mentioned it offhand he said um that the uh oven would work but the burners didn't work and they had repeatedly asked the uh, uh landlord to fix it but he hadn't and um he said sometimes they'd spark but they wouldn't work great <laughs> where was wow. that it was directly under the kid's bedroom and in fact, uh, with the, the tests, you know, on burn patterns and all of this that uh, Jerry and his assistant did, they, they thought that that was the most likely source was that stove. That faulty stove. Yes. And they mm. were going to get the death penalty. I mean, doesn't that scare you? It sure scared me. Mm -hmm. it, it happened. And that's the sad part. And that's what needs to stop. Because there is so much true science out there, and there are so many real experts out there that believe in justice, not making a name for themselves. And, and you, you wind she, up with these we prosecutors. Just, it's just horrible. We were so lucky because this was a Daubert state mm -hmm. where you had to show that your uh, expert opinion is based on replicable quantitative mm -hmm. science. Whereas right. some states like Wisconsin, it's fry. And uh, uh, that goes back to the 1920s. And it just has to be that, well, it's generally accepted. Well, yeah. gosh, you know, you can go places where uh, where all kinds of things are generally accepted. Uh, flights of fancy and, and mm -hmm. uh, old wives tales. That doesn't make mm -hmm. them shouldn't make them admissible in a court. Right. And you know, one of the things that was troubling to me when I was on the job was that 
the officers would stop saying, uh, I'd like to see what this citizen's up to, or I'm going to stop this citizen for speeding. They started using derogatory names. Let's see what this jerk-off is up to, and let's uh, go get this uh, African-American referring to a black man. And when you start thinking that way and describing them that way, you've already lost your ability to impartially judge what they're doing. That's right. Yeah, and that goes right back to that what, what you were saying earlier, is you know after a certain amount of time on the job, you got you get desensitized to you know to the needs of the public because now you're 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 part of this other group, you're part of this law enforcement group, and you forget what it's like to be a normal person, and and that's the problem with 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 investigations when the person in charge of an investigation. It's it's supposed to be like you're you're the Monday morning quarterback now. There's no emergency now. Let's investigate this. Let's make sure that we cross the T's and dot the I's, find the evidence. And if there's no evidence to support this case, we have to look elsewhere. We can't blame this person if we can't find evidence. But, oh, my gut tells me he did it. My gut tells me she did it. I'm going to get their ass. I know they did it. That's the pervasive attitude. And if even the most minuscule piece of evidence, uh, and it's completely circumstantial, they'll blow that thing into Mount Everest and use that to put somebody into prison. And it, it's nothing. It, it's absolute garbage evidence, but they use it, and they find a prosecutor to go along with it, and they do everything they can to, to push it through the court system. And, and no matter how hard a defense attorney tries to bring in uh, contradictory evidence and actual proof that their client's innocent, the judges don't want to hear it. They won't allow it. And well, it you, amazes you know, me. You know, in popular media, that gut, uh, the, the gut feeling and mm -hmm. the uh, uh, rogue cop who mm -hmm. just knows that this is what mm -hmm. happened, you know. Got a crystal and, ball. Yeah. Yeah. That is. Um, constantly drilled into the public's mm -hmm. head as yep. as the ideal and i've i find first of all that i don't watch much tv to begin with and when i do i want to watch something worthwhile and i've been far more impressed with mm -hmm. um documentary uh policing programs mm -hmm. that i've seen that have been produced in england Mm -hmm. Because they have been so much more particular about making sure that they do have a case, and if they don't, they he's out of here. Mm -hmm. We're not. We can't hold him. Uh, there was a, a series that uh, followed investigations of a, a serial child sexual assault suspect, and they took their time. Certainly, there was a, a sense of oh my gosh, this is somebody who's after our children. At the same time, they they wanted to make sure they had the right guy. It wasn't all swashbuckling. Yeah. Sure, you want the right guy, not 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 some poor schmuck, and then the, the bad guy is still out there running around. And that's the that's problem right. with, with we have in our police state. You, know, you said it. You know, it amazes me how many times I've looked at cases with Ira, and, and we look at it, we go, this guy had a crystal ball. This guy had a crystal ball. This prosecutor yeah. got a crystal ball, and and, and there, there there's no factual base behind anything they're doing. 
and they're just chasing after this guy because they want him. And when they want you, they're going to get you. And I, and I, we were talking about this all the time. I don't care who you are. If they want you bad enough, they're going to get you. They, they will make it up if they have to. They will fabricate it and they'll put your butt in prison because they want you. And if people don't wake up, they're going to, we're going to, we're going to live in a police state. We're already in a, we're already in a country now where police officers have shot and killed people that didn't deserve to be shot at all. Because the police officer, A, is either too damn scared to do the job, B, didn't see what he thought he saw, and there's mm-hmm. no punishment for it. I mean, you, you see it all the time. I've watched body cam after body cam, looked at case after case of people being shot dead that are unarmed, and, and, in, and even if they were, not a threat to the officer to start shooting at all, and they weren't even directing their weapon. You know, they, they may have been involved in something at the time and defend themselves from someone else. And then the cop shows up, sees them with a gun, and without warning, shoots them and kills them. And yeah. it goes on and on and on and on. And I'm sitting there going, what the? When I was first started on the job, it was in your head. You better be working right if you You know? And, and now all I see is, well, you know, first ask questions later. I mean, and that's what we're getting in this country today. And that's pretty sad. Because we've got a lot of trigger-happy cops out there, and a lot of them are and they were brought up on these damn video games where, you know, they shoot and kill people constantly on a video game, and they get back up and start over again. And they don't realize when they pull that trigger on that real gun, they're not getting back up. That person's not getting back. And they need to pay attention to what they're doing, you know, because they hold a death sentence. You know, you, you walk uh, around yeah, with a badge and a gun. I'm really, I'm really disturbed by... You know, the fact that we have some athletes who, uh, as a sign of respect, geez, I was raised Catholic. We genuflected when we came into church. We genuflected before we left. Take mm-hmm. it a knee, all right? All right all I right. don't see that as anything disruptive, and it and it draws your attention to a fact. It's a fact that this has gotten completely out of hand. Mm-hmm. Shoot first and ask questions later mm-hmm. and it it, it, it's it and it's beyond granted uh minorities are more often the victims but they haven't got a lock on it it can affect any of us oh yeah any of us and yeah. to tr- try to turn that into something where we should um stop watching football unless they fire them for doing that you know geez <laughs> whole thing with the wrongful shootings and and whether or not nfl players are, are uh you know standing or kneeling you know when the flag is out the, the, the media uses different things to get our attention away from the real problems and yeah. when you've got police officers flatly committing murders essentially in the street i've seen videos of body cams where policemen have shot unarmed people point blank and i'm sitting there going when i was a police officer i trained cops in the academy and on the job use of force. That was part of my my profession as an instructor with training self-defense to policemen to protect themselves. And my constant, constant mantra was, you must be sure before you pull that trigger. Now, there's nothing wrong with being quick. There's nothing wrong with being, you know, accurate and all this other stuff. But if you're shooting an unarmed person, 
you're wrong. I don't care what the situation is. Don't sit there and tell me I was in fear for my life because it's not an excuse now. You know, if you're if you're too chicken to get out there and do this job, that the minute you get a little you know belly flutter, you're pulling the trigger on somebody. You don't belong out there. And when police chiefs are protecting those police officers and prosecuting police officers, we have a problem. You know, maybe the thing is, maybe it wasn't criminal intent, but maybe this person's not cut out for the job and it's time for them to leave. That may be the other answer, you know. So is this a situation where officers are underpaid so the the profession isn't attracting top talent? I mean, decades ago, it, it felt like being a police officer was an honorable profession. So is that how you end up with more bad apples or is it the training that the officers received has not evolved with the times? It's a little bit of both. I mean, you're, you're getting, I don't, we can call it a money issue as much as it is an attitude issue. You know, you get, you, sometimes you get these people that have come from a walk of life that, that never had any control in their life. And being a police officer offers a tremendous amount of authority and control. And if they don't understand it and they don't take it seriously, it can get out of control. You know, because you've you've heard the saying before, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But a lot of people down on police officers thinking, oh, they're like a blue-collar worker or whatever. The fact of the matter is that police officer carries the authority to take your freedom and take your life. And if they don't wield it properly and, and they're administrative, and control them properly, you basically have now a, a Gestapo force rather than a police force that protects and serves. And you get the psychological testing and all this other stuff. A lot of people fall through cracks that don't belong on the job. And, you know, I've seen where um, a sheriff will hire a group of people and one or two people that get hired really don't belong there, but they're a cousin to a friend or a nephew or some other little political favoritism, so they hire him. And the guy's a complete moron, has no business on the job, but now he's there. Now try to get rid of him. You got police unions and all this other stuff. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. It's, it's, it's very difficult to get rid of a police officer that doesn't behave correctly. Internal affairs, phew, that's a joke. When you, when you file a complaint with internal affairs, their job is to make the complaint go away. It's not to prove the cop did something wrong or not. It's to make the complaint go away. They don't want headlines. They don't want problems. So their pat answer is the pat answer that all the cops use in any investigation. We did a thorough and complete investigation, and we found our police <laughs> officer did, did nothing wrong. It's, it's a freaking common phrase. It's, it's, it's ad nauseum anymore. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh, but yeah. No, but it's You're true. Exactly though, right. I, You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Uh-huh. I trained enough of them over the years where I would go to the director of the academy and say, this person doesn't belong out here. You know, I would go in and talk privately. Well, you know, it is not that simple. Well, what does it mean it's not that simple? <laughs> this person doesn't belong on the job. You know, this person's going to be a danger to the community, but they don't want to hear it. You know, they paid their fee to go to the academy. If they pass and they get hired, it's somebody else's problem. Well, you know whose problem it is? It's the citizen's problem. Because mm -hmm. now we have to deal with this moron. And I, and I use that term 
because that's some of the people that are out there are. Now, there's a lot of good policemen out there, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of bad ones out there, and they're making life miserable for a lot of people. So uh, just just talking a little bit more about uh, truth and justice, what, what what is, you know, are there any cases that are ongoing right now that you feel really especially strong about that, you know, really kind of is a microcosm for this problem in, in society today? Well, um, yeah. And, and there are, in fact, there are multiples where that we, uh, have under, uh, the, the general heading in the innocent in prison. There's over a hundred there altogether. And, uh, these are all people who have compelling innocence claims and they're still in prison. Um, for example, Ricky Kidd, he's in Kansas City, Missouri. He spent 20 years in prison for a double slaying that even the former prosecutor and the police commissioner agree he didn't do. Can't get it back in court. State witness has recanted and recanted the recantation and then flip-flopped some more. So the judge says, no, that's not good enough. And uh, he's run out of time. He doesn't have time anymore to continue to appeal. Form is more important than function. It's another example of what I had talked about before. Um, is it another one from Chicago? Oh, Chicago. There's so many of them. Adam Gray was 14 when he was coerced into confessing to setting a fire that killed two people. He recanted that immediately, but, you know, he was convicted because, gosh, why would anybody confess to something they didn't do? And then he was sentenced to prison for life in 1996 when he was 14. Think about 14. Hmm. And they get back into court, and finally, a judge says he deserves a new trial because. All of the theories on which they based the arson have been debunked, and it wasn't an arson. I just, it's talk about insanity. You know, it's like Alice in Wonderland, off with her head. Mm-hmm. And there's there are just so many of these. I've got a whole page full. And if anybody listening has not watched Making a Murderer on Netflix, it's a gut-wrenching thing to watch because at the end of it all, these guys are still in prison, especially poor, mentally slow Brendan Dassey, who was fed a confession that was part um, video game and and uh, Grand Theft Auto, straight out of there in part the fevered imaginations of the investigators themselves. And he's been convicted and sent to prison for life. And the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals just said, no, that wasn't coerced. Anybody with half a brain can watch that. At the, the... Federal judge who initially flipped his conviction said you'd have to be insane to think that that was voluntary. Mm-hmm. So 
so apparently there are some insane judges. And so the hey, kid is still appeal. there. And and on what do you do? Do you, you appeal now to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court? What if they turn him down too? Then they set a precedent that applies to the entire country. And they can do whatever they want uh, out there, coercing kids and any other vulnerable person into confessing to crimes they didn't commit. Feed them all the facts. There you go. The U.S. Supreme Court says it's okay. So it's really tricky. I myself, when you mentioned that comment about anybody, but you know, it's not just the mentally incompetent that they can convince. You get someone scared enough mm -hmm. to the point where they think they have the only way out they're going to get is if they just admit to something because the cop is promising something that, look, you just, you know, let me help you out here. If you just tell me this is what you did, you know, I'll help you out and it won't be that big a deal, blah, 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 blah. You know, or they wrangle them for hours on end, 10, 15, 20 hours, that a person's damn near incoherent. They're, they're liable to say anything just to get out from underneath it. It could even that's be right. a sarcastic, it could even be a sarcastic comment, and that's considered a confession. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like to say, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, I did it. Okay, you're, you know everything. And they take that as a confession when you're just being a smart ass at that point. You're so tired of hearing their bullshit. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I did. Yeah, right, all right. Yeah, and, the, yeah. and that's a confession. You know? Well, in, like, in, in, Penny, in Penny Broomer's case, they said that she, she confessed, they said, because she slightly nodded her head when one of the mm -hmm. cops told her, I believe that you were involved in Sarah's death. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so what well, you know, and does that come? Does that come in as a nonverbal admission? Well, son of yeah, a gun. That's, yeah, that's a nonverbal cue that she's guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they found yeah, she, an Iowa case, an yeah. Iowa case where uh, during questioning, um, a a defendant had nodded when he was asked if he committed the crime, and therefore, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, using that as an advisory case because there was nothing on point in Wisconsin, then the judge thought that that would be appropriate. Mm. But you know, That's if it, you, yeah, and and so they pick and choose. You know, like the New York mm -hmm. case, no, 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 no. But the Iowa case, yes, because it's yeah, what I yeah. want to do. It supports what yeah. I want to do. Some interviews, you know, where you watch through a glass or you're, you know, in the middle of the interview with someone. And if you're in there with them for a couple hours, two or three hours, and you've actually, you know, have a rapport with the person and you study their body language and listen to their verbal, and you can actually ascertain when they're telling the truth to a certain degree and when they're lying to a certain degree. But it's not foolproof. You know, if someone's saying yes, you know, and nodding yes, you could take that as a yes. Yeah. If they consistently say no and they're nodding yes, that being confusing because you know, uh, is this a no or a yes? You know, uh -huh. so it's really it behooves the officer to go, okay, hold on a minute. You know, you're you're telling me no, but you're nodding yes. Which one is it? You know what I mean? Uh -huh. <laughs> so nonverbal cues are a signal, but they're not definitive. And you know, there's so much science, so much junk science out there. And everybody has their own 
um, way of communicating. You know, when you go from culture to culture, eye contact is important in our culture. In other cultures, um, they're not so much on eye contact, especially with authority figures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when they don't look you in the eye, doesn't mean they're lying. Uh, it's just no. their culture. You know, and, and a lot of people don't understand that, don't comprehend that. And it's like you said, it's what we want right now. So that works for us. So we're going to take that. And that's the yeah. way they use it today. And it's been going on for God, for probably since the early 40s or 50s, when it comes to prosecuting cases, um, if they want you bad enough, they're going to get you, you know, and, and over the years, I've, I've seen a huge decline in professionalism, no matter how much training uh, officers and prosecutors are getting and in, in the intelligence that's out there and the advent of computers and the ability to research things, they don't utilize it to their advantage. They, they just take what they want. They take that gut feeling and they, they take that little tiny shred and they turn it into this giant mountain of evidence, which doesn't even stand the test. But they get their convictions because the judges won't allow an expert to come in and say, wait a minute, you know, this gun does not match that projectile. And then your cases with the fires, this was not an arson. This is an accident. This is an electrical Uh fire, you know, and and they're not allowing it because the prosecutors Mm -hmm. want to convict this person out of ego, uh, have to make a name for themselves that the crime, or it appears to be a heinous crime and we got to do something. Somebody's got to, Somebody's got to pay the price, even if it's an accident. And uh, like the case we talked about earlier, before you came on, uh, it, it was an accident. And the man's been in prison now since uh, 2002 uh, for a murder he didn't commit. And it's been yeah. proven over and over and over again by other experts. But the, the courts won't allow it. They won't change the venue. And this poor guy's sitting in prison. And it, we know how many? Hundreds of thousands just like him. Yeah, We, it, we, uh, we talk stop. about... We hear talk about uh, so-and-so got off on a technicality. Well, these people are being held, innocent people who are continuing to be held on technicalities. And there's a whole lot more of that than anybody Mm -hmm. getting off on a technicality. Mm -hmm. Sheila, what's something people could do to help fix this problem, whether it's with truth and justice or writing emails to their representatives? Uh, first of all, find out what the laws are locally. You know, like I said, in Virginia, for example, there's that 21-day rule. Um, make, make the effort to find out if there are traps for people, legal traps for people, and then write to your representatives um, and, and tell them you want that fixed. Not because it's something that's impacting you right now directly, but because it could impact anybody. If they uh, are big, quote-unquote, law and order folks who uh, appear to advocate for for lock, lock them up and throw away the key, you know, like a Jeff Sessions. <laughs> um, get, oppose them. You know, oppose them at the polls. That's where you've got your power. Vote for somebody else. Vote them out. Um, In terms of more person-to-person type of thing, contact the Innocence Project that serves the area where you are located. And we have the whole list at Truth and Justice. You click on 
from the main page, which is truthinjustice.org, not .com, but .org, um, which means that we're a nonprofit. You click on Innocence Projects, and right at the top, it says Contact Information for All U.S. Innocence Projects. Click there. Find your state. Find the groups that that uh, assist people in your state and find out what you can do to help them out. Some of, I, I can't think of any of them that wouldn't welcome a donation. We don't take the donations. I pay for this stuff out of my own pocket, by the way, because there are so many others that need it. And as long as I've got a job, I know where the money's coming from, I pay for it. But um, obviously any of them would welcome a contribution and if you don't have money to give them, contact and send them an email, a letter, pick up the phone and call and see what you can do to help as a volunteer. Uh, you might live in a, a town that's 60, 70 miles away from where your Innocence Project is located, and they might need for you to go down to the courthouse and look some stuff up for them. Simple things like that that can make such a difference. But we can all do things to help in those ways. Is there anything you'd like to say before we go? I mean, this has been a fantastic talk and very informational for me and I hope for the audience. Well, I really appreciate you having us on. Uh, and uh, again, I, I just hope that people will take a few minutes to visit Truth in G and uh, take a look at the cases and it's really hard to deny how often this happens when you look at them all. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's a, a good place to to see where you might be able to help, too. From Sal, Ira, and I, we would like to thank Sheila Berry from Truth and Justice and private investigator Dave Beers for talking to us today about wrongful convictions. This is a serious problem in society and something that we need to start a dialogue about. We can be tough on crime, but at the same time understand that mistakes are made and keeping innocent men or women in prison is wrong. This problem does not start with law enforcement or the prosecutors. It is something that we as American citizens need to address with our representatives, because only together can we solve this problem. Thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this podcast and want to make sure you keep the content coming, please donate on Patreon for as little as $1. And thanks again to our audience as we look forward to having you here next week for Archangels of Justice Weekly. Sometimes we forget why we're here. It's easy to fall off track. These help us remember. These battle scars don't look like the fate. Don't look like the Something no one else could see Tell me what it means when your faith is falling beneath your knees And you can't breathe Everything you see reminds you of what you're not Or something you won't be You gotta take what you're given, that's how we live it Don't be mad at the system, it's simply how we've existed I hear a lot of people talking like they politicians And choose to be an accountant because it's safe in a business Not because they wanna do it, just because they heard it pays And who the fuck wants to be poor, no one, that's how we've been raised Society is getting heavy, I can feel the weight the pressure of success is like a hundred million pounds of shame and that's the reason i'm staying up late trying to find a way to escape the stereotypes this day and age is making me
me feel like the only way I'll be happy is getting signed to a label and making money through rapping. I wanna share my emotion because this world is attacking the very principle of life that lets the people be happy. If you don't have a reason to breathe, why even live? These battles cause our impressions of everything that it is. created equal because some decide to be great and some decide a sequel to an average person's life is simply what they want to be so you make your decision all i know is what i'm given won't define the life i lead or the way i dwell in existence i've seen a greater image on the walls of where i'm living and the words twisted and scripted remind me of something written faith is a gift that is given down to the people if one believes it one receives it it's given if it is needed don't ever think you're trapped in a life that you never wanted your options are infinite that's some mathematical logic i'm not saying i'm a prophet i'm speaking for what it's worth these lyrics define my prayers and these battles cause i'm a church not saying i'm a prophet i'm speaking for what it's worth these lyrics define my prayers these battles cause i'm a church